Kalima! Kalima! If you've ever seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and many other Hollywood movies, you know that chant, right? Kalima. What does that mean? What's the deal anyway with Kalima? It's a mantra to the Hindu goddess, and in some cases you might say demon, Kali. Ma means mother, so Mother Kali. This is a fierce goddess who carries around severed heads and her avatar, and she's the object of worship of many Hindu people. More to her, actually, though, than meets the eye. Welcome to Fangs and Folklore. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Here we are in the basement of the uh, abandoned castle in the middle of the haunted forest. Um, yeah, so uh, the castle cats are around here somewhere, and I heard a few ghosts upstairs earlier. I think they're getting kind of rowdy tonight, so we'll try to wrap it up before it's midnight. Uh, yeah, so Matthew Miller is my name. I'm an expert in all things horror, paranormal, monster, and just good old fun. Fangs and Folklore, we explore the supernatural and try to go a little bit deeper into the human condition. Um, welcome, and I invite you to check out my books. I'm a horror writer as well on Amazon, uh, beginning with Volume 1, Blood Feud, a punk rock vampire story. It's the story of the Gravediggers, a failing punk rock band who keep crossing paths with things like vampires and werewolves and fun stuff like that. It's horror and horror comedy. I think you'll enjoy it. I'll flash up the book, uh, first book up here. Check it out on Amazon. Yes, indeed. So we're going to finish off this Fangs and Folklore series of, about demons on Hindu demons. We've looked, talked about Christian demons, Islamic demons, Jewish demons, now Hindu demons, and that'll be the end of the little mini-series. The fact is that Hinduism has so many gods and goddesses and deities and, you know, semi-gods and demigods. Most of them have incredibly complicated origin stories, especially to us Westerners. I find it delightful, but it's so complex. I remember I bought a book called The Many, Many Gods of Hinduism once and read it, and it was, about a, it was by a Hindu who, who was talking about the complexity. All right, so as we begin here, let me flash up the copyright notice. I do have some videos in here. Keep in mind that I have every legal right in the U.S. to show portions of copyrighted work for, this, for the sake of you know, criticism and analysis, things like that. And that false reporting of copyright violations is also illegal. By the way, sorry that this took a couple of weeks to get out this episode. I'm in the middle of writing a new book, and this takes a while. Finally, if you want to support me and what I do, my horror work, consider just buying me a coffee. Scan that QR code. You're not literally buying me a coffee. What it is, it's kind of like Patreon. It's a new service. Five bucks. Five bucks. Buy me a coffee. You have some perks. Or as much as you want. So, appreciate that if you consider it. Also, tell your friends and family. Like and subscribe to Fangs and Folklore. All right, Kali Ma, the mother of all Hindu demons. Now, if you're Hindu, you might say, ah, Kali's not a demon. And you'd be right, because really, Hinduism doesn't have exactly the same distinctions as Christianity does. Probably, I would imagine many of my viewers are familiar with Western Christianity, where there's a clear demarcation, God, Satan, angels, demons. Angels good, demons bad, right? There's not a lot of overlap there. God good, Jesus good, Satan bad. Sin bad. Righteousness, good, that kind of stuff. Heaven, good, hell, bad. Well, Hinduism has a lot more subtlety to it, a lot more gray areas. It, you'd be hard-pressed to, fi to, to find something in Hinduism the equivalent to a Christian demon exactly. There are demons, but they're, they're also kind of gods. So when I call Kali a demon, I'm not trying to insult anyone who worships a devotee of Kali Ma. What I'm saying is that while she is a goddess and a major one, she has some... some tendencies that we in the Western world might call demonic, even though I'm not saying that she's evil. I'm trying, not trying to insult her. Keep that in mind. So Ma means mother. So she's Mother Kali. Who is she? There's another uh, deity called Kali, who's a demon, who's male. And it's a different pronunciation of Kali. Now, I don't speak Hindi, so to me it sounds the same Kali Kali, but I'm sure there's a distinction among speakers. 
Most of the stories, like I said, of Hindu deities are incredibly complex. So I'll try to keep it as simple as possible for our Western minds. Kali's earliest appearance is when she emerged from the goddess Durga. Durga is a goddess who fights evil and is good, generally. And uh, her purpose is to destroy evil, uh, defend the innocent. Durga is a, is a in fact, there's a great uh, festival every year in Hinduism uh, that worships Durga. So, um, over time, Kali has been worshipped by many, many people. She is a consort of Lord Shiva. Shiva, one of the great big gods of Hinduism. You know, so in Hinduism, Brahma, uh, Brahma, Brahma is like the god who created everything. But Brahma is kind of distant. Brahma doesn't interact with us directly daily in Hinduism, but rather exhibits itself, himself, herself through avatars. Lord Shiva is an avatar that interact with humans. Now, the name Kali, the origin of the name uh, is a little complicated. It's not linguistically related to the word Kala, Kali Kala, which means black. But in popular language and culture, it has come to be associated with that. So she's also known as the Black Mother or the Dark Mother due to the dark, due to the dark color of her, uh, her avatar. Now, she's first mentioned in 600 Common Era, so uh, we would call that in the West early Middle Ages. Even then, she was not a major goddess. She was a goddess of battle. Here's her origin story. So the goddess Durga, whom I mentioned, is being attacked by some other gods, Chanda and Munda. And Durga basically gets so angry that her face turns dark, right? Red, flush. And Kali comes out of her forehead as a manifestation of that anger and that, that darkness. Kali is dark blue, Kali, sometimes black, often dark blue. Now, interesting, dark blue, um, the, the earliest uh, people in India were the Dravidian people, and they, were, they had skin that is a certain kind of darkness that you might call blue. There are still people in India, they call the blue, those with blue skin, who come from these ancient peoples. It's not blue, like bright blue, you know, like the, like the sky, but it, it's dark, but it also has a kind of blue element to it. Very interesting. So Kali is blue. Now, she's gaunt. She has sunken eyes, almost like a corpse, and wears a sari of tiger skin and has a garland of human heads. Pretty, pretty uh, frightening appearance there. She, uh, so she defeats these Chanda and Munda who are attacking Durga, now, um, there's another evil god, I guess you'd call, called Raktabija. Raktabija, Raktabija is, uh, has a special ability where in battle, if he's cut, every drop of blood of his that falls on the ground becomes a clone of him, equally powerful. So you're spraying blood everywhere. Before you know it, there's thousands of Raktabija everywhere. So it's hard to, hard to you know, defeat him. So basically, Durga says, okay, Kali, what I want you to do is go to Rak Tabija. When he begins to bleed, I want you to drink that blood down before it hits the ground. Kali does this. She kind of suckles his blood, and therefore, Durga is able to defeat Rak Tabija. So Kali represents, in a sense, the wrath, the, uh, the anger, the fury of, of Durga. Not necessarily evil, though. Wrath doesn't necessarily have to be evil. There's righteous wrath. All right, there's other origin stories of Kali involving Shiva and Parvati. Um, basically, Parvati and Shiva merge and come out as Kali to defeat Daruka. <laughs> like I said, these are very complicated <laughs> stories. And I'm just, I'm greatly oversimplifying it. If you are a, a follower of Hinduism, I don't mean to butcher your tales. I don't mean to offend you. These are just so complicated <laughs> that it's hard for Westerners sometimes to understand. You can see that these stories of Hindu deities are strange and complex to the Western mind. 
but they have important and deep meanings to people who, who are Hindu and the ancient peoples who wrote down these stories. Now, Kali has two basic appearances. There's the four-armed form, right? She has four arms, two and two, and the face kind of like a corpse and the garland of human heads. And she's black in color or often dark blue. Her eyes are red with anger and intoxication. So I guess she drinks. That's odd. Her hair is all messed up, disheveled, and she has fangs often coming out of her mouth. Her tongue is like, you know, like, I don't know, it'd be gross, but if you've ever seen the corpse of someone who's been hanged, the tongue often swells and lolls out. That's kind of what it is. Again, she has human heads all over her, tiger skin. She's also uh, accompanied by snakes and a jackal. Okay, jackals are seen as these animals that haunt deserted places and feed on dead bodies. Um, she is uh, often shown as standing on the body of Shiva, who's her, she's his consort. So she has, she's standing on him with her right foot. Now in Hinduism, there's two paths. There's the right-hand path, the, sorry my pronunciation here, the Dakshinakara, and the left-hand path, Vamachara. Forgive me if you speak Hindi. Uh, the left-hand path is transgressive. It's, it's what the Agora practice, that sect of men who eat dead bodies and do all sorts of transgressive things. The right-hand path is the, uh, the popular normal, normal way, anyway. She's standing on Shiva with her right foot to represent the right-hand path. Um, all right, what else can we say about Kali? She's also, the second way she appears is with ten arms, okay, as an avatar of Mahakali, uh, shining like a blue, brilliant blue. And she has ten faces, ten feet, three eyes on each head. She has ornaments all over, no association there with Shiva. Now, the thing about... Hindu gods and goddesses. Why do they have all these arms and heads and carrying all these things? Each one has a very particular and important meaning. Everything a god carries or a goddess in their hand, one of the hands, has a very important meaning. It's not just random. Okay, These are very, very meaningful and symbolic figures. So Kali, in a very general sense, Kali Ma, represents the darkness in the world, as well as death and fury and renewal. This is hard to understand for Westerners. We are so binary in the way we think, right? Is it good or evil? Yes and no. <laughs> it's both and it's neither. She is often seen as good and a blessing, though, because she represents uh, the wrath of Durga, who is a good goddess. And although Kali represents death, death is not seen as a horrible thing in Hindu belief. It is a renewal, uh, a change, a time to go into your next life, right? Okay, so that's Kali. She's the big one. And again, uh, goddess, demon, something in between, Kalima. All right, another Hindu demon slash, yeah, I guess demon, is Putana, Putana. She is a Rakshasi. Rakshasis are demons, and I think it's the feminine form, so they're demon, demonesses, is that a word, a demoness, demonet? Uh, okay, so Putana was killed by Krishna when Krishna was an infant. Krishna is one of the main gods, right? So here's how she did it. She disguised herself as a beautiful young woman, uh, very trustworthy, and and found Shiva's, um, I'm going to say it, Krishna, I'm sorry, not Shiva, Krishna's mother, and says, oh, beautiful baby, let me breastfeed him. And of course, uh, Krishna's mother says, oh, how kind of you to show this motherly love. She had actually rubbed poison on one of her breasts, and she tries to kill Krishna that way. However, Krishna suckles her breasts, but he keeps sucking, not just the poison, but also her life force, and defeats her in that way. 
again, you're thinking, what in the world? But these these stories all have deep meaning, right? Um, she's interpre- interpreted uh, Putana, she's seen as a ch- children's disease, right? So think about most of the history of the world, childhood disease and illness was a major thing. Most children did not survive. So you can imagine in ancient times when these stories are written down, that childhood disease is a big thing. She's also represented as a bird. Um, she's a danger to infants and babies. Symbolically, she's the bad mother, Putana. She is one of the Matrika, which is a group of evil Hindu mother goddesses. And uh, she sometimes, sh- uh, the plural Putanas, many Putana sometimes is written about. Uh, so the word Putana, it, it means no virtue, right? From na, meaning no, and put, meaning virtue. That's one explanation. Okay, won't get too deep into the linguistics. She's also associated with smallpox and chickenpox. And she also stinks and is covered with sores. Um, She's a killer of infants. She was sent by Krishna's uncle Kamsa to kill Krishna. Why his uncle wanted to kill him, I don't know. Bhutana, so again, this is where she disguises. So that's the person who sent her to disguise herself, breastfeed with poison. Okay. so Krishna, when he starts sucking away her life force, she shows her true form. She screams. She says, please have mercy. Let me go. But she's, it doesn't work. So she runs out of town with Krishna still clinging to her. And finally, she falls dead. Now, in Hinduism, when a god or a goddess or a deity dies in a story, they're not really dead. They're still around today. It's kind of hard to understand. So basically, uh, so the people of the village find her. Uh, turned to dust, her body. They cut her into parts. They bury her bones, burn whatever remaining flesh is left, and this rises as a fragrance. And um, they say that Putana was then cleansed of her sin by breastfeeding Krishna. And so she's kind of seen as like a bad mother and a good mother, which is, again, hard to understand. She's represented as a bird sometimes. And I think it's interesting because she reminds me a little bit of Lilith, if you watch the Hebrew demon episode of Fangs, go back a few episodes. Uh, Lilith is a goddess demon of Middle Eastern lore. They both, Putanic Lilith, they both kill and eat babies. They both are depicted as birds. Both are fearful but motherly. And both kind of have a slight pitiful element to them to be pitied. So yeah, Putana. All right. So these stories are complicated. I, I just find it fascinating. I love it, the complexity of Hinduism. And, um, you know, these origin stories are amazing. Everything is so symbolic. Now, here at Fangs and Folklore, we like to go deeper than uh, just the facts. So let's talk a little bit about the, these Hindu demons. If you've ever been to India, you know it's a colorful, vibrant, lively, crowded, complex culture. In fact, the average Westerner, European, American who goes to India to a big city, just overwhelmed at first, like, holy crap, what is going on? It's like just this massive humanity, so much going on. I think it's amazing. It's wonderful. Um, not everyone likes that environment, but I do. Um, so the gods seem to represent that, don't they? They're crowded. They're complex. They're chaotic. They're lively. They're good. They're bad. They're everything at once. Another point here is how things are meaningful sometimes to a particular culture in a particular location or time in history. They have deep meaning, but they can be baffling to people from other cultures or other contexts. Think about just Catholicism. You know, I, having grown up in the U.S., I'm used to it. I mean, I went to Catholic school all my life. I'm not Catholic as an adult, but I went to Catholic school, and it seemed normal to me. But think about what happens in the Mass. You hold up this 
bread and wine, that in, then it literally becomes the body and bread of uh, blood of Jesus, but not exactly literally, but literally you eat it flesh and drink his blood in order to be renewed. And that's pretty weird to people who didn't grow up in that, in that, uh, you know, in that element, right? In that context, so you might imagine a Hindu saying, what drink, eat his blood and his, his flesh. And it's not really his flesh, but it is literally. And so just because these stories are, baffling to us. They held and hold deep meaning to the people who study them and understand them and worship those gods and goddesses. And so in a very real sense, the gods, the religions of a culture of a people can be seen like as the expressions of that people and their understanding of the world, okay, the understanding of the cosmos. I'm not going to say that, uh, well, religion is, this that religion is true or false, but I do believe that it's interesting how gods of religion seem to uh, kind of mirror the people who worship those gods. The gods tend to be like the people who, they, who worship them because the religions and the gods are expressions of a people and you know the, not only the zeitgeist of that time, but that people, their culture, and how they view the world, and they're also different. Now, what I'd like to do is watch some videos of Hindu exorcisms. This is interesting, okay? You probably are familiar a little bit with the Western Christian or Catholic exorcism, where you have the the victim on the bed, the priest comes in with a cross, uh, you know, starts reading the the right, tell me your name in the hour of your departure. The person on the bed, ah, oh, you know, if you've seen the exorcist movie, they go, they go crazy. If the priest succeeds, then the demon is driven out. Well, um, Hindu exorcisms have some similarities. But let's watch these. There's a temple in the Indian state of Rajasthan called, again, forgive my pronunciation, the Mehandipur Balaji Temple. It's unique because it's an exorcism temple. It's there for exorcism. So it's for people who are possessed by demons or their family can go there or take their family to be exorcised by a specialist priest. And these videos take place there. So let's take a look at what Indian exorcisms look like. Uh, the first one uh, is um, at that temple. So take a look at how this one works. Me and the other girls, the moment is at hand. The exorcist works them into a trance. One by one, the girls break down. When the spirit comes forth, the girl loses all control over her body. That's when I know she has been possessed. The exorcist urges the spirit to talk. It seems ready to surrender. I will leave her body. I will leave her forever. All right, so this is typical of Indian exorcisms. Uh, first of all, many of the victims are women. Now, I'm not making um, a moral value judgment on this, but in Hindu society, there are definitely stricter hierarchies among the genders and the professions and everything than Western society, in some Western societies. Of course, uh, India had the caste system for so long. So women generally are considered to be more susceptible to demons than men in India. Men are possessed also, don't get me wrong, but, but probably majority tend to be women. So notice that they swirl their heads around, right, like this, and they kind of bend down and hit the ground, slap the ground. That's very typical of Hindu exorcism. You see that all the time. All right, video number two. Um, this one is a little... Interesting. So let's take a look at video number two. This is another exorcism.
That was lively, wasn't it? Here you see the priest toss a powder on the woman's face. Now, I don't know if this is the, uh, the kumkuma, which is um, a mixture of holy spices that Indians put on other people's faces to bless them, like your elders. And, you know, uh, you know he kind of tosses it on her face, and she seems to react, right? I'm not sure if it's the kumkuma, but it's something like that. And the, the, the spices are a reminder of the sweetness of God. You can see the priest get rather aggressive. He grabs her hair and pulls her down on the ground. That is what he's doing there is commanding the demon to bow down to God, to Brahma, to Krishna. And it seems extreme to the Western observer because we're just not used to it. But this is standard practice. It's kind of like the priest, you know, forcing uh, the, the demon to reveal its name. Well, this is forcing it to bow down to God. All right, third video. Let's take a look here. Alright, this is a walk-by of that exorcism temple. Notice how many people around it who are possessed or who, who believe they're possessed go there to pray. They, and they, they pray at certain shrines on the outside. They wait and hope to be seen by a priest for an exorcism. But notice again the typical, you know, most of them are women. The swirling of the head, erratic movements, bending down, very typical of Hindu exorcisms. What do you think about that? Um, wow, it's, 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 it's disturbing to me to see that. Uh, what about, what do you think? Do you think possession and exorcism are real, faked, or a symptom of mental illness? What's your opinion? I'd love to hear from you in the comments. Uh, as for me, if you've watched this channel for any length of time, you know I allow for the possibility that the supernatural, the paranormal do exist. I've had certain experiences in my lifetime that have led, to, that led me to believe that. I know anecdotal evidence doesn't prove anything objectively, but that's just my own experience. Um, I see two main possibilities. First, what if demons are real? What if possessions and exorcisms are real? If that be the case, then we need to be careful about doing things in our lives that might invite demons in. And I'm not saying I'm not saying go be you know join a church or something. I'm saying this: be careful. I'm no expert in possession in every culture in the world, but when it comes to Western Christian exorcism. I am pretty familiar with it. And in the majority of cases, not all of them, but majority of them, when demons torment people or families, the victim had done something in their life to open a portal. Even if they didn't really mean for that to happen, they did some kind of a ceremony, some kind of a thing, or went through a stage in life where they opened up a portal and invited a demon in, even unknowingly. Not always the case, but usually. Um, you know, if you watch the channel, I believe poltergeists are demons pretending to be ghosts. And in poltergeist cases, almost always the family has done something to earlier in life to invite a demon in. Even maybe one of their ancestors had done something. Again, not always the case, but usually. Uh, so be careful. If demons are real, you need to watch what you do so you don't invite them in. There's a Fangs and Folklore episode, uh, past episode, about how to survive a poltergeist haunting, by the way, if you're interested. The other possibility is that possession and exorcism are just psychological or psychiatric issues. They could all be fake, that's one thing, but let's say, let's say psychiatric, psychological issues. That just mental illness, not paranormal or supernatural. Possessed people sometimes do demonstrate behavior that could legitimately be assigned to mental illness. In fact, at least in the Catholic Church, if it's considering doing an exorcism, the victim or the subject has to be examined by medical doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists to make sure that it's not mental illness or the, the symptom of some physical disease, you see. What if possession really is just mental illness? 
I still think there's a benefit in exorcism. And there's studies that show this, that even if the exorcism is just for show or kind of like playing along with the, the subject, it can be therapeutic. Um, studies have shown that people who are truly mentally ill and believe they are possessed, if they go through an exorcism, it can have some, some good effect to them. It's kind of like a placebo effect. If you take a pill, you think it works, and it works. Does it really matter that it was a placebo if the bottom line is to be cured or healed? So if someone is mentally ill but believes they're demon-possessed, uh, an exorcism could be therapeutic to convince them that they're clean now, even if it's just a placebo effect. I think about the case of Annalisa Michel or Michel. This is a German girl on whom the movie The Exorcism of Emily Rose Emily Rose, yeah, I think that's the movie. Exorcism of Emily Rose was based. She was a German girl who showed signs of great mental illness and signs of possession. And she had this extended, repeated, ongoing exorcisms over and over for a long period of time, ended up starving to death and dying. And uh, it's a tragic case. Uh, here it's a tragedy that could have been avoided. But I, I think about her. Was she just mentally ill? If so, those priests did her a great disservice, uh, her parents, you know. But it, was she possessed? If so, still, things could have been done differently. What do you think? What's your stance on exorcism and possession? Certainly something worth thinking about. I'd love to hear you. Uh, YouTube, make comments below. Also, if you want to email me, I'll flash it up on the screen, matthew.miller.writer at gmail.com. So um, I appreciate you watching this time. And I, I've, been, I've been having like a little, really a little headache. Um, kind of feeling funny at night, kind of waking up, and I basically... <laughs>